Welcome to episode 13 of the Edge Grip podcast. And with us today is the one and only industry giant and champion maker, Chuck Graves. Chuck, thank you so much for being with us today and taking the time. Yeah, thank you, Chuck. Thanks, thanks Nabil. Yeah, thank you, Gal. And, and Ch Chuck, your nickname is the King of Willow. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you, you have to be really fast around Willow Springs and, and win enough races to get that, that nickname. How'd you get that nickname? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I think I think they gave me that nickname because I, maybe they thought they could beat me everywhere else. But that really was um, my my it was my backyard, my stomping ground, and it was really the place that uh, I built my riding career and I built my company at uh, at Willow Springs. That was the track that you could go to twice a month. We had AFM, and we had what was called AWRA which later became uh, WSMC. And it was a, it was embraced by the owner, Will, uh, Bill Hugh, who walked back into the sport. It was close to the manufacturers in their backyard. And um, because it was fast, it was important. And this, this was all during the era of, of building new super sports bikes. Bikes were coming from being naked bikes to being fairing bikes and to look like road race bikes and perform like road race bikes. And the manufacturers would every year were anting up to be better. And um, th at that time, the race track, the motorcycles hadn't outgrown the racetracks as far as performance. And Willow Springs being one of the fastest racetracks in the country, you could truly see the performance of the motorcycle over the others. And so it was, it was the hotbed for where things were happening. And uh, so I did a lot of riding at Willow Springs and I won a lot of races. And I, I guess that name just stuck after some, some period of time. You, you broke the lap record. That's impressive. Yeah. You, you broke the, the, the lap record. What, what bike did you use and what was it when you broke it? You know, we, I did it on a number of occasions, but it was with the, the first time we did that was with a GSX-R750 that we shoehorned a GSX-R 1100 motor in the frame. And it was a hopped up 1100 motor. They called them 1100s. I think it was a, a 1098. And, um, you know, back then, a set of flat slides and a big bore and some camshafts would really make a bike rock. So um, Bill Hugh had, a, had an idea that he didn't care about anything except how fast can a motorcycle get around my racetrack? And so um, Bill created this thing called Formula USA, right? And this was before it went national. And, and he got Toyota involved and other sponsors involved. And he made it no rules. He didn't care if it was a V8 with two wheels. That's what the race was going to be. And, um, and, he, and he put a lot of prize money behind it. And so um, as that developed, that so did my skill set and our I would say a bike building, and that's that began became our uh, the beginning of building these really cool hybrid motorcycles for um, you know Google Springs racing. But then that went national, and it was a really cool era, great era. R rules just get in the way. <laughs> yeah, they do. They they do. So I mean, being named the fastest guy on the fastest track in the U.S. is a pretty impressive feat. Yeah. 
this is this is unbelievable and it's kind of sad it's sad but you also have to do it right because i remember world rally championship same thing they had the group a where there was no restriction right and so the companies that had the bigger budget and you know they start going crazy with engines and the cars became almost you know too fast and too dangerous and also it limited the the entrance although you can put new entrants in a different category and have them race against each other but they banned it and so you could only get group b after that and there was tons of rules around limiting the engines and i guess it happened to the motorcycling world too because even with this i mean we have moto gp but they have rules around it I, I can only imagine how fast bikes would be if they had a no rule type of racing today mm, mm, mm. well moto gp is almost no rules right and there's some rules to balance out what the manufacturers can do and what the tire manufacturers can do but they really, I mean, they're pretty hands-off. I mean, but all of the really cool aids that they have, including the aerodynamics and stuff today, really getting around the racetracks pretty fast, maybe too fast still. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. it still has to be a 1,000cc bike. It can be, you know, 1,500. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, well, I guess you're right. Okay, so they would be much, much faster. Maybe they'd have to be supercharged 2,000cc. That would right. be pretty cool. I think I'd like that. <laughs> I'd like to yeah, see I don't that. know how you would ride yeah. this, but <laughs> maybe they need an autopilot. <laughs> I, 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 see, I see your wheels turning. I see your wheels turning. Yeah. Are you going to go back to the shop and build one? <laughs> yeah. That, well, you know, Kawasaki has this really cool supercharged bike. And I keep looking at it thinking that would be so cool to make a road race bike out of it and see what you could actually do. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it would be pretty cool. Actually, I think somebody wrote it at Fontana uh, about a year or two years ago. Um, I gotta get, I'll gotta send some details about this, but they did a pretty decent time, considering you know the long straights there. Uh, and I can't remember if it was Tony Elias or 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 who did that, but uh, oh, is that I right? Tony Elias wrote it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, That's you need to cool. take it from being the street bike. And make it the actual race bike platform get the tires and suspension and all the bits and pieces on it right maybe some electronics that could balance out the, the power output so that the wheel stays on the ground and that the tire stays on the rim <laughs> yeah right so. yeah that would be a pretty cool bike to build bimota actually so they're using kawasaki engines and gal will tell us all about bimota in a minute but you know i haven't gotten it yet uh, i'm still waiting but Bob Has it said, been 45 days? Yeah, well, Bob said they're currently testing it. So they're actually testing the shifter, and the shifter is going to work right. They're going to ship it over. And if the shifter is not going to work right, then they're going to make another one. So hats off so to them for testing. The, uh, yeah, that's nice, actually. So you don't have to be the guinea pig. But uh, yours is the standard, like 1100. And I think that Bimota took the, what's called the H2R engine, and put it in a bike that has a better chassis isn't it hmm. no mine's the kb4 hmm. so the kb4 has the z1000 engine it doesn't have the supercharged yeah. engines and then they have the tezzy uh and that that tezzy has the supercharged engine okay it's the tezzy that they did with yeah. that engine mm. yeah mm. yeah well you know although well. not a race chassis but they have good chassis in the motor it well the tezzy's mm. got yeah, that yeah. that yeah. uh front swing arm what do you call it uh yeah, the telelever. Uh, no, it's not telelever. Telelever is the BMW one. They they have their own 
mechanism that that's that's a front uh, swing arm with um, with with a way yeah. for the front hub to move around. So I'm I'm not too sold on that, uh, but I got the KB4 because I just I like the way it looked. It looked like a cafe racer. It's a street bike, um, and then for the track, I have I have what Carrie built for me. Uh, so anyway, you built in 1988 GSXR 750, uh, right? Which I actually owned back in the day, and that bike almost killed me. Uh, but that's that's a different story. Uh, mm. How did you find the the eighty eight versus the eighty six slash eighty seven, and what exactly did you do to your eighty eight? So I think I think the big challenge was when they went from the eighty six eighty seven platform to the eighty eight platform. The frame was more rigid. The steering head angle was steeper. The seating position was more aggressive. Um, the valving and the forks were Probably uh, it, it was actually a cartridge type four where before they had, um, you know, old school sort of dampening rod and the, the older frame flexed a lot more. And it was all of those things made it a lot easier for the average guy to set up. So they went to the ADA and it, it became this race bike that took some experience to set up. And so that that challenged a lot of folks. And um that's that's that was the, the big difference. Now, also, if we're talking about the 750 engine, the 750 they changed the bore and stroke, and so they took a lot of the torque away and they put a lot more RPM up. And uh, in an, at that time, it was short stroke motor, and it had really poor port velocity. So um, it was a lot of guys had challenges making it run too. It wasn't that the other stuff was pretty easy to make run, and this one was harder to make handle and harder to make run. And so um, I think that hurt him a little bit in that, in that, that, in that transition, right? The 1100, I want to say the 1100, did it change in 88 or is that 89? So 89, don't, then went yeah, to the went one to that had, yeah. yeah, looked like the 715 and then I think 143 horsepower engine yeah stock yeah and i think we used we used the, i believe we used the 87 motor they were big board into the 88s but 88 was um i think that was the first year that formula usa went national i can't remember is that right i i i, I don't remember it's been a long time ago <laughs> <laughs> no it might might have been yeah i think it was i think it was 88 i want to say it was 88 the first year that it, no, maybe 89. Maybe it was 89. Anyways, yeah. So go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to get a little <laughs> lost there. So what exactly did you do to it? Um, I, I know my standard one had uh, had some issues uh, that, that they fixed in 89, uh, but then the 89 models also had uh, the same fundamental turning issue that was uh, lack of um, ling angle. Uh, you would just grind everything. You found that you had a lack of lean angle yeah. in with the 88, 89 versus the earlier model. Yeah. So I I think that the center of gravity was a little low at that it, with that unit, and um, you needed to raise the bike up a bit, and you needed to get some trail in it. And um, you know when when the when the CG is low, you have to lean it over a lot further. And so because I don't think the motors were any narrower, right? 
we used to do a lot of things to narrow up the motors. We'd pull the, the stators off and we'd machine the bottom of the cases and weld them, you know, tighten the flat plates on there and put more ground clearance in them. But I think that was part of the issue too, was um, the CG was a little low, but if you raised up the bike, you don't, you don't have to lean it over as far to get it to go through the corner at the same speed. Okay. Um, that was one of the many things that I would have done. The, the standard the one, forks. the standard one had, I think 112 horsepower. How much did yours have? With a, 1100 motor in it? Yeah. I'm afraid to ask. Oh, geez. you know, I know. I want to say there's a gentleman by the name of Mike Weimer. I don't know if you know that name. Mike Weimer was, uh, he was the guy who ran the dyno at Kirker when it was in Canoga Park, and uh, which became Kirker Super Trap. And uh, I did my dyno work with Mike, and I learned a lot about, you know, the internal tuning of the engine. At, and during that era with Weimer. And uh, I want to say on the Kirker dyno, it was about 165 horsepower. I don't know what that equates to, to a rear wheel dyno these days, but it was, it was pretty fast. It was missile. So, so basically it had the same amount of power that it's standard. I think Ducati V4 has today in the rear wheel when you take it out of the store <laughs> with with no electronics yeah with no electronics right and uh it was interesting because you had thinking about with that that in that era we had round slide carburetors right and the round slide carburetors when you had an engine that made a lot of of uh um a lot of it had a lot of vacuum let's say when you'd shut the gas, the slides would stick, right? And it, and going from closed to back open was really, really difficult because the, it would be stuck, stuck, stuck. And then once you put enough effort to get it moving, then you'd, you'd overcompensate with your wrist to get it to move. And, you know, figuring out the little things was one of the things I was really good about on the mechanical side, maybe better than actually being a rider. But... um so what I did was I, I, uh, I took the carburetors and put them out of sync. In other words, I had the slides in different levels. So it would sound really funky, right? Mm -hmm. But it would, and it was almost like a form of engine braking and, um, and, and traction control from, for that era. So by putting the slides at different levels, I could uh, have less of the engine decel going into the corner, and I had a smoother transition coming back onto the gauge. Essentially, essentially right? a big bang engine. Well, not not such a big bang, but say think about it like this: when you had a motor like that, and all of a sudden you shut it off, all four cylinders die, right? And now the bike's wagging and it's heavy on the nose going in, and when you crack it on and it wants to take off so what i would do is i would make it go from a four cylinder to a three cylinder to a two cylinder to then go from a two cylinder to a three cylinder to a four cylinder leaving the corner okay i could do i did it with the slides right yeah and and it also made the throttle less sticky right and i built the cam a cam and the throttle which i sell that cam throttle today for cable operated motorcycles because people love them right because at the at the um, 
you know, at the bottom part of the ramp is you can move the hand the most and hardly anything happens, which is always when you're on the smallest part of the tire, when you're leaned over, right? So um, if you're going into a corner that's bumpy and um, your hands, you know, the bike's moving around, it's really hard to be a surgeon, right? So I, I make these cam profiles in the throttle tube so it was really small in the beginning. It also gave me a lot of leverage over those slides, right? And, um, and, 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 but it also only moved it a little bit. So the power change was very small. So it would give it that time for the tire to get down to the ground, relax and bite the pavement before I start to pick it. Cause you can't steer until you get the gas on. Right. Yeah. So, so once you just crack at the slightest amount, then you could begin to turn. Right. And, get the thing pointed where you wanted to go, you start to pick it up and then you could give her all 165 to the rear wheel, right? <laughs> Sideways off the corner. So I, I, I had a lot of little tricks like that. And uh, I was always really good at figuring stuff like that out. That, that's in that, era, so that, that was engine that, mapping. That was engine mapping was, before electronics and, and computer ever existed. That's right. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, if you go that's back awesome. to that era, no one would have been thinking about stuff like that. Guys would say, oh, just turn the idle up, right? Okay, well, yeah. So, anyways, yeah. To that's a, that's a little bit of the stuff we did. To, to everybody that listens, the, listen. the main difference between carburetor and fuel injection is the fact that in, in a carburetor, there's something called a Venturi effect, and... The faster the air flows through the carburetor, the more gas gets sucked up from the jets. Uh, in an injection, uh, we just have a computer that injects the fuel uh, into the air. Uh, so really, that that's the main that's the main difference. Um, you uh, working through the physics of it, or letting the computer decide how much you get. Uh, so that, that's why I'm a big fan of carburetors still. <laughs> they're very smart aren't they <laughs> yeah they're smart for, for what they are right but they're so fuel injection is so much better there's no gasoline on your hands right <laughs> you don't have to take everything apart to make a change right you don't need to, you don't need to man, choke it <laughs> right you don't have to choke it you can just well you sort of do you set it up to do it right nice. yeah. so so then then 89 um you go national. The series Formula USA goes national, and all of a sudden, you got all the big names uh, coming up against you, and you uh, you did pretty well, didn't you? I think so. I think so. Um, I really, I, probably, it's probably too smart for my for myself. In other words, probably could have done better as a writer if I had found a way to work with other people who were doing it, other tuners, right? Say because they could have brought me up a lot quicker. And, but I was always sort of doing my own thing, right? And uh, sort of running my own program and, and trying to find my own sponsors. And and, uh, and that, was, that was good. And I had the opportunity to, um, I think around, well, as the series developed, um, I had the opportunity to, to to work with other people, but in the early years, yeah, I would say I did really, really good. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I saw videos of you beating Colin Edwards and competing against Nick Einach and a lot, a lot of big, heavy names out there that 
yeah. you beat on your own machine. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I actually won the first two nationals for former USA in uh, would have been, I guess it was 1989, right? So 89, we won the one at Willow Springs. Yeah. And then we won the one at, uh, at Portland. Oh yeah. That's what it was. It was a disaster. <laughs> I, this is, I got to tell you this story because this is a little interesting. So, you know, things were very bright. I won those two nationals. That was a big thing for me. And uh, I had this great sponsor, Fifth Avenue Seltzer. It was one of those, uh, the bike that was, you know, we did graphics back then where it was just the whole motorcycle was Fifth Avenue Seltzer. It was really cool. And uh, I had the opportunity to go to Suzuka for the eight hours. And so I went there and I did that. And uh, and I, and I the, back then it was usually you and a mechanic. And that's what you had, or, or a helper of some kind. That's how you went to the racetrack. And uh, the mechanic that I worked with, we had been friends for a few years and work. And when I got this chance to go to Suzuka, he really wanted to go. And I, and I, and I, they didn't, they didn't, couldn't, wouldn't pay for an additional person to come to Suzuka with me. And so I went ahead and went on, went on my own and, and and took that opportunity. It was which was a great experience for me. But when I came back, he was so hurt that he quit. Oh. And, and yeah, which was really sad because we're great friends. He just, it just really hurt. And um, the worst part about it was is that he took the bikes completely apart, all the way, the motors, all the way to the ground. So when I got back, I had only like four or five days to get ready to go to the next national. And now I've, I really don't have an established person to work with. But I was a good mechanic, so I had to put I had to put them back together myself. And so at that in that time that era, my backup bike was a, a seven fifty super sport bike. So you could make contingency money on that and use it as a backup if something happened to your primary bike. So I got them both back together, and I and I and I got a a sixteen year old kid to come with me. I was what twenty or twenty one or I don't know, remember whatever age I was at the time. But um, so we set out a day late, and I had had no sleep for two days. The bikes back together, and we were driving. We were going to have to drive day and night, and we were still going to be late for the first practice. Right? That's what we figured. And uh, he fell asleep at the wheel in Winslow, Arizona. Totaled out the truck. Showed out the trailer, both motorcycles, everything scattered across, yep, scattered across the desert. Right. So in the middle of the night, I wake up and like everything is just scattered. Done. That was that was the end of the program. So um we went home, got managed to get what junk was left over, and 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 I had I had a job at uh, the local Suzuki dealership as a mechanic when I wasn't off racing. And so I just went back to work and, and licked my wounds and figured I'd try it again the next year. That's um, the story of ended my, two, my Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a tough deal. Tough deal for me. Yeah. Pretty much because ev everything I had, I had built and owned was tied up in that truck and trailer and those bikes. And that was kind of a, it was, I still had my toolbox, right? <laughs> That's all you need. I still have my toolbox at the dealer, right? So I got back to work and, and, uh, Ground it, ground it out again. And it, it turned out it was worth it, grinding it out. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't change a thing. I wouldn't change a thing. And I've, I've loved every moment of the highs and the lows, right? Yeah. Been fun, right? It's that's what that's what builds your character, right? Yeah. Not about really how how you come back up really that matters. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. To tell us I'm about and get stuff, no doubt. Tell us about Big Papa, the legendary Big Papa. So, well, you got to remember the Big Papa thing comes from Yoshimura, right? That was really Yosh did some stuff, and Yoshimura um, uh, had built these seven fifty eleven hundreds as well, right? I think that I don't know. I'm not going to claim who did it first, right? <laughs> But um, so. After that era, you know, or at least that that '89 and '90, I uh, got some support from Burt's Motorcycle Mall. They loaned me a couple of bikes, and I just focused on earning money at Willow Springs, right? And um, so I got what six hundred, seven fifty, eleven hundred. And my, the deal I'd make is I'll give you back the bike at the end of the year. We'll sell them, and we'll split whatever profit is in it. And I'd get the sponsors to help with the parts and. So that went really well in, in 90. And then at the end of 90, Yoshimura um, offered me for 91 to ride their bike at, at Willow Springs. And they allowed me to build my bike over in their shop. So I had now established a new mechanic and I that worked together, a guy by the name of uh, Todd Martin. We, we, uh, um, We built up the bikes in the program again, and and uh, we would go down to Yosh. We'd drive from the valley to Yoshimura, and we that's where we would build the bikes. And I'd do the engines, and he'd do the chassis stuff. And um, um, and so I got a, the opportunity to ride Yosh Yoshimura's bike at the next Formula USA at Willow Springs that year, which was Big Papa, and that would have been the first year that Kenny Roberts brought the Father and Grand Prix bikes. And uh, so during during that uh, that era, you know the super sports and 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 superbike and and Formula USA. There was AMA Pro, which was you know beginning to do well, but Formula USA really brought television back to the United States road racing scene. AMA was defunct, and they they looked and said, "What is Formula USA doing?" And the teams and money started to gravitate that direction. They had to fix it somehow, and and they did their things over at the AMA. But um, there was also rival teams looking for budget. So John Ulrich at that time was um, running a, a, an endurance team in Wera, and he was one of the big dogs in the Formula USA series. And then you know, force and with Suzuki budget, and over in the AMA Pro Racing was Yoshimura, and they did. Superbike and Super Sport with Suzuki budget, and I was working over at Yosh building those bikes, and then taking that equipment and knowledge base over to the Formula USA and beating up on the on the on the Valvoline Suzukis with, and we beat them up good, right? And then they just because it was really just our bikes and the and the and the 500 Grand Prix bikes in that era, and. Um, So I went. It was a really successful year. Great year. I had a great time, and uh, so that's the the big Papa story. The, the end of the big Papa story goes that uh, um, at the end of 
1991, we had a great season, and, and Yoshimura had said, hey, look, we want to do this again. It was fantastic. We loved it. And, uh, and so we planned to do it. But about 30 days before the first race, they called up and said, hey, we're not going to be able to do this again. And, um, you know, I thought this is just a, this is very odd. I've had a great relationship with these guys. Why would they want to just stop this all of a sudden? And uh, I, I, I couldn't figure it out. And so I had to bring the equipment back that we had borrowed from them. And uh, um, that's it. That's it. Nothing. That was it. 30 days. That, that was it. Done. Right? <laughs> Imagine a racer has put his whole career into doing this and he's got nothing. Oh. Right? He had nothing happen. He had planned this whole season, this whole everything he'd done, all of a sudden now he got nothing. So about two, three days later, after I've returned all the equipment and everything's great, you know, John Ulrich calls me up, says, Hey, you're looking for a ride. And I'm like, Wow, there's the savior, right? Okay, I've gonna Yeah, absolutely. What what have you got? So that's that that was the end of the big pop era. And we we uh, started racing and doing stuff with the the what was then the Team Hammers Valvoline Suzuki team. And how did you do? How did you do on the Valvoline? It was pretty good. It was it was a good era. Um, you know, I I learned to work with other crew chiefs and not uh, not build my own bikes and for some of the stuff. Um, it was really difficult because I knew if there was something I and it wasn't what I thought it should be, it, you, it was very difficult to to say that because that's somebody else's work. So I really had to change my whole thought process to be a rider and not think about the technical aspect of the bike, but rather just tell them what it, uh, what was good and what was what was uh, um, bad about the bike and what I needed to, so it, it was, I would say it was, a, it was, a, it was a good experience for me that gave me the opportunity to um, keep a, a group of bikes back at, at my workshop to continue doing the Willow Spring stuff and, uh, and, um, and then do the national stuff for John and, and his team. And that, that was pretty good. We won, uh, we won a national championship and had some good times and, Met some great people, and it was a. I, I would say, um, it's a good experience. And then 1990, everything changes, right? You tell, I think your brother, hey, let's let's open our own shop. Well, <clears throat> so that's uh, in '90. I had already started Chuck Race Racing, right? Which that was when I was building the stuff and doing the doing the racing. So the Ulrich thing happens. That's all the way up into '92. But between um, 90 and 92, I've, I've, I've already established this shop. But it was at that time when we started uh, doing this stuff with the Valvoline in, in, in 92 that the shop uh, became a, a facility for uh, the California Highway Patrol, which is, you're going to go, what's uh, that mean? Yeah, right? Well, so. Well. So I had some friends that were high patrolmen and they rode motorcycles and I had worked with a few of them, a little bit of training. They had some police Olympics they did out at Willow Springs. 
and uh, a lot of the police officers would, you know, come and do the police Olympics. And I think it was California Superbike School. Those are the bikes they was they rode in that competition, the police Olympics. And so I got the opportunity to meet a bunch of those guys. So they would stop by this 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 workshop that I had, and that's where Graves Motorsports started. Right, it starts in '90 as just a hobby shop, and you know, and a place to work on my race bikes, but. Now I've got these these friends that are high patrolmen, and the shop is right off the 405 freeway, right? And 405 and, uh, um, well, the shop's on Balboa and um, Balboa and Satakoy, which is basically 405 and, say, say Sherman Way, okay. right? What is this, Van Nuys so they, City? They, is this Van Nuys? Uh, no, it's Van Nuys. Okay. Van Nuys. It's Van Nuys, yeah. Um, and so it was actually the, the shop was right. I don't know if you know that by the name by name of Matsu. There was a guy by the name of Matsu who worked with Yoshimura, and he had his own shop called Escargo, like a snail. And oh, yeah. he, when I was a kid, I would I would ride my bicycle over there and watch this guy hand make pipes. This is before Yoshimura became who they who they were. I he would he would fill these pipes with sand and weld them shut, and then hand bend and heat them. And it was just the most amazing thing for me. I loved watching this guy do this, but it was actually right next door to Matsu's old shop. But so, so I'm going a little bit off track here. So and I've got the shop in Van Nuys where, and the high patrolmen are coming every day. And we had a little lounge for them and, you know, Monday night football and hey, babe, and they could go write a report or whatever and hang out and talk. It just turned into... You know, could could we leave some brake pads here? What if we got a flat tire? You know, and we would be there. You know, we'd do 12, 14 hours just because it was a hobby shop, right? So it could be seven, eight, nine, ten, midnight. We'd still be at the shop. And so they, they would just show up if they're out on a ride. They'd swing by and say hi and hang out for a bit. And uh, we ended up with a contract servicing four divisions of the California Highway Patrol. And that's what really started Graves Motorsports. So that... I could hire technicians to have them there. My, my brothers would run it, and the high patrol could stop in, get flat fixed, get brakes changed, oil, whatever. And because it was the hobby shop, they always come first. And that was our pitch to the state: that hey, look, you, you're not going to you're not going to have an officer down when they got a vehicle, because it used to be they'd have to drop it off at a dealer or take it to the motor shop, right? And so if you had to drop it off at a dealership. It took two officers out because one had to go pick him up and take him back to the office. And then you'd still have to get a ride there and back. So it just saved them an immense amount of time. And, and we were able to get them product at a, at a great price and give them great service. Um, and and so we did that for a number of years. We used that to, to um, earn the money to, along with the stuff that we did at Willow Springs, to earn the money to buy machines and get Graves Motorsports started. We started manufacturing uh, hard parts for the bikes and doing dyno work, and so that's 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 how that started. All during the the racing time too. Not, so I had all that energy. I bet you also didn't never got a speeding ticket. <laughs> <laughs> well, if anybody ever let me go, I won't admit to it. <laughs> But they did. It's interesting because those four divisions covered the area around the Rock Store. And Angeles Crest, so because we had Altadena and 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 Westlake were part of it. So um, 
a lot of great guys, let's say. <laughs> so you had it covered. That's great. I guess you didn't sleep much either. You know, I just, I'm a high energy guy. I like to get stuff done and uh, I don't, I really don't like sitting around much. Speaking so of, if I wasn't, yeah, go ahead. Speaking of, of earning money in Willow Springs, you, you hold the record, right? Well, so that, yeah, uh, yes, yes, yes. And I, and I, I'm not sure where that stands today, but I, the, with WSMC out, um, for the funds that they output, it was, you know, I, look, I made a living there and that gave me the opportunity to build my company from, from racing at Willow Springs. I was told you that was the hotbed. There was an era when we could make about $15,000 a weekend at a club race. Um, and that would be tire money, uh, manufacturer contingency, support company contingency, and the funds from Willow Springs. And that would that would feed us and, and put money back into the coffer of the company. So it was, uh, yeah, I'd say I'd say we did, we did very well. I got to thank Bill Hugh for that at Willow Springs. So the stats I saw was uh, it, it's a statement that was issued in 2003. So obviously not not the end of your reign there, but it was about a hundred grand made just with WSMC contingency money. Uh, and my, my record yeah. stands on minus 30,000 over there. <laughs> yeah. So I, I paid no, and you good. got paid. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what you spent was 30,000. Oh, okay. Well, that you, you got off cheap, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and in today's money, that's like a million bucks, right? With inflation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I would, I would actually go down between Saturday and Sunday back to Kerry's shop. He would wait for me, put tires on, and then I would go back up there. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not good at racing. <laughs> so, so well, Chuck, how do you manage? a racing career at the same time as running a shop and building parts. I mean, that's like three jobs for three humans and you did it all yourself. You know, well, no, I didn't. I had my brother. My bro I, uh, I have, uh, I, there's actually five of us total when we're all in business at one time or another in different types of businesses. And, uh, but my younger brother, Tom, um, you know, he came in and, and he did a lot of the logistics and, um, and the organizing and you know i've had a lot of great people work for me um and around me and with me over the years so i'd say you know i'm a you know one set of hands can only do so much right but a mind can do a lot so we we uh wheels never stop turning let's just say that and and and, and the motorcycle racing part once you became at least at that era when you were so hands-on to all of a sudden have to take your hands off the vehicle. It was such a change for me. It, it was, I would say it was easy. It was easy. So, and then you, I shouldn't say it's easy, but you know, it was easier for me. Looking back, everything's easy, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> there were plenty of struggles. Yeah. Switch back to 1997, the first MA Pro race as a team owner. Graves GSXR 750 and GSXR 900, which not exactly a standard model, is it? No, and 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 so um, you mentioned you asked about that that 900. So that was really GSXR 750, and um, 
the they came out with a motorcycle called an RF 900, which used a lot of similar internal engine parts as a GSX-R750. Right. So I took the GSX-R750 chassis and the and the, the superbike transmission and camshafts and the bits and pieces and and intermixed all those to make a GSX-R900, which was just a missile. And um, we set we reset the lap record at Willow Springs with that bike. It was a great bike. Um, back even all the way back in that era, we had carbon fiber gas tank. It was about three hundred and twelve pounds, I think. The bike, wow, very light, and um, and so it was so light that when I took it to that ninety seven AMA race, I really didn't realize that AMA Pro racing had rules i thought formula extreme was formula extreme <laughs> so we showed up with this bike forget rules and uh <laughs> right well you know I, I thought it was formula usa so we show up with this bike and uh immediately uh, mark miller was riding the bike for us it was immediately as fast as the as the area in hondas and that had those guys just up in arms like kevin Aaron was not happy about that because there was a nobody that was just going to show up and and he was you know had a shot at winning the race and uh so after qualifying they weighed the bikes and i thought why, why are they weighing the bikes <laughs> i came back and go oh wait a minute you're you're way too light i go okay well sorry um, i didn't know right because i didn't i never looked at the rule book i just wanted to show up with what we had and uh so you know it's the thing that really irked me though i'll tell you this um is that they disqualified us from qualifying i said okay so we get to start in the back of the grid and we'll add some weight to the bike they go no you don't get to start i'm like well why can't we just put the weight on no 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 you you don't you don't get a provisional start and for me that was really kind of odd right but it's okay i licked my wounds we went home acted up and uh, then I got a phone call from Tom Tom Houseworth, right? And Tom Houseworth was running the Yamaha road racing team at the time. And Tom Houseworth was um, he was he was actually a crew chief of mine at the Valvoline Suzuki uh, team in one of the years. I want to say the year actually we won the national championship, right? In '93, won from the USA, and Tom was the crew chief. And he built all my logistics uh, are 600, 750, and 1100s for the Suzuki Cup races. And uh, and he said, "Hey, look!" And he and he and I we'd had a relationship because when he built the bikes, he didn't you know he did everything. And and he always thought it was kind of odd. Even my like the bikes that I used out of Willow Springs, I'd ask him to build. He goes, "But I, I had a shop and I was building my own engines." And he couldn't. He'd always say, "Why are you having me build them when you can do it yourself?" Like I'm Tom, I, you're the you're the guy. It's your job. You do your thing, but I got to stay busy. So that's why I do it. Right. So uh, anyways, Tom Tom knew of my skill set. We were good friends, and and uh, um, and so he said, "Hey, look, we got this. We got this new motorcycle coming. Right. It's called a called an R one, and we we want you to to campaign it in, in Formula Extreme for us in the next in next year." We can we can get you this in a couple of parts. Do you want to do it? And I go absolutely. I mean, that's the greatest thing that ever happened for me. I was like, and this is fantastic. And that started the era for us 
with Yamaha. So we went from, uh, you know, we were with the R1 all the way to its death, right? To where it is now, which is the last, probably the last model they'll ever make. Certainly the, the R6 has been finished. So um, anyways, but uh, pretty cool, pretty cool. 21 years of doing that. Did it, did it blow your mind, the bike, when it came out? Well, it was, it was the leapfrog, right, from where, you know, we had these these set-up bikes with the handlebars that were up, the kind of loss and replicas and those types of things, naked bikes, uh, to fairing bikes. And then came the R1, which was the next, you know, really the next evolution. And, uh, yeah, I would say it did. It was the hottest thing since sliced bread, right? It really was. The R1s were just dominant machines from from that um, and they still are still a great bike. Yeah. Yeah. They, they were they were by themselves, I think, for a year until uh a year or two years. When did Suzuki come out came out with the GSX on one thousand? Two thousand or two thousand and one? No, they were making G GSX R one thousand for quite a quite a lot of years, but they needed to up the ante, right? They really needed to up the ante. And they the the R1 was light and it was well put together. Um, and we see this happen every now and then in the industry where whoever the project leader for a for uh, this, whatever the next, this new model that might be developed, they get a, a project leader that is very race oriented. And you can tell when you, when you look at, at a motorcycle, um, you know, how mature the project leader and, and you're going to obviously have the technical leader and you're going to have the administrative leaders, right? The bean counters that, that probably all weigh in on this. But you can tell that group and and their experience level when the unit comes out by, you know, how a motorcycle is put together, its price point, right? A lot of a lot of things. But the, the R1, you know, across the board was simplistic, was fast. It was, was a race bike with lights. Um, you know, more like the early model GSX-R 750s in, in 86, 87, before they started, you know, adding a lot of stuff that didn't, wasn't really necessary or uh, secondary thoughts. And you could tell when those project leaders changed, right? When, like you said about 86, 87 was one way, all of a sudden 88 is something different, right? Well, there's other influences at that time. And then 92... So yeah, 90, 92, I don't even want to yeah. think about it when they right, have two right. water cooled. But you could tell that this group was really good, right? Very race-oriented, and uh, I, I wouldn't know about the administrative side at that era, but, um, you know, that was the new, the new thing that was going to be happening for the future for sport break. And everybody else followed suit with, with these types of, of units. Yeah, I think it replaced the Thunder Ace. Remember that bike? Um, no, FZ, FZR 1000. Yeah. The, the Thunder Ace yeah, looked, looked like a big. Yeah, a Thundercat. Thunder, was it Thundercat yeah. or Thunder Ace? Thundercat. I think that was the 600 they called the Thundercat or whatever it was. But FZR 1000 was, was, was the machine before that. Okay. Right. They did have OW1, which was the 750. Right. But the, the, it was, this was changing. Everything was going 1000. Right. That's what people were thinking. Yeah. Right. I, what what year did Superbike change from 750s to 1000s? Uh, I don't remember. I don't remember. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit vague for me too. Yeah. But, but these these that's 
that it was still 750 at the time. I, I drank a lot of soda, so I, I can't remember much. <laughs> well, we'd have to go back and do it with a little, little bit of history there. Right? Yeah, and then, and then in the middle, they had the, the fire blade, which came out at nine 900 at the beginning. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah and it was yeah. super light yeah. back then. Yeah, very simplistic. Yeah, yeah. A lot, you know, that's that's the way I look at that uh, that new ZX4RR. It's, um, you know, you can tell that that group was very mature all the way across the board. Now, with my experience, I can tell when the administrative is good too, right? Yeah. And um, so anyways, it's, it was really cool to see the, all that come about. And that really gave me the opportunity to just really show our talents, right? Yeah. And, and then you start, you start running Yamaha teams in AMA um, and you become, you know, the important figure you are today to the industry, uh, less of a writer, more of a um, team manager slash uh, the, the Yamaha R1 parts guy. Um, and then, and then I saw, I saw a little video and I, and I read a little story that in 2004 as, as a team manager, um, you decide to do a, a press day just to showcase your motorcycles. Uh, and it just so happened to be on this small racetrack called Willow Springs. <laughs> right. And then you right. put then you right. put your suit on and you go you go for a few laps uh, with your riders. And your riders, uh, who who was that guy? One of the Goberts? Yeah, that was that was Aaron Gobert, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and did he did he uh, after after those those two or three laps did did he come back and and just go back to the trailer and didn't, didn't come out for a couple of days I think he was, yeah i think he was quite surprised but uh, uh yeah well i i would say no i had the mechanics pull one of his spark plug gas <laughs> before before we rolled out so i could beat him no you didn't no you didn't no you didn't no but i should have huh <laughs> 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 right it's, it's yeah. not a good day that that your your team manager beats you on in on the racetrack but i guess he didn't know he who he was racing against he, he did but he hadn't ridden with me before what were there journalists there that were like whoa wait a minute yeah you know there was quite a few guys there i don't remember all of the uh shenanigans that went along with it but aaron's a great guy um, and uh you know, I have to tell you, it was one of the, um, the guys I was really close to as a writer. Right? It was really a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, just a good, good experience, great experience with him. For you. <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, the, next, the next bullet point is uh, Graves owned the title of being the only person to ever had a bike banned <laughs> from the AMA. Tell, tell me about that. Our, I mean, you, you have a history of combining motorcycles together, you know, uh, GSXR 1100 to 750 to 900. This one was an R1 slash an R7. So how did that idea come about? And, and what, what do you do to that bike? So this was, you know, I would say the peak of the builder era for superbikes and and thousand cc motorcycles in america 
um, you know, Yamaha, they were still racing super bikes. Uh, they were 750s. They had an R7, which had a lot of really cool bits and pieces on it. Our, um, our Yamaha support had gotten, you know, better and better. And here it was 2001, I believe it was, that we built the first R7-1. And we had a really great rider, David Buckmaster and Aaron Gobert, both riders. Aaron was actually injured the first year. He got injured at Daytona. And in that era, the Formula Extreme bikes did not run at Daytona. And there's a lot of reasons why, but the lap times and the speeds were much faster than that of the super bikes. And uh, they could go 200 miles an hour even back then. And so they just didn't want those bikes there. So they would always start the, the, the second round. And so Aaron got injured in super sport, uh, doing super sport for Yamaha. So he wasn't able to ride. So we only had Damon. And, and we spent that year, 2001, developing that motorcycle. And we won yeah. five, six races, maybe half of the races with Damon. We didn't win them all. But we finally found a package that was really, really good. Aaron came back the, maybe the last two races of the year and uh, found his footing again because he was he almost died at Daytona. He crashed and got run over on the banking, and it's quite a quite a big deal. And uh, um, so, come nineteen ninety two, this bike was just dominant. And you know, the AMA when 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 we set out to build this bike, we went with Yamaha to the AMA and said, okay, this is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to build. We're going to spend our budget. And we are, you know, we plan to do this over this period of time. Right. And, uh, and so even for Graves Motorsport, it was it, even with the support of the factory, it was still a lot of work um, to do this. And so we, we built out parts and equipment and we had to amortize it over three years. But by the second year, the bike was so dominant that you could put it on the front row of a superbike race. And 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 that was really upset a lot of the other teams and manufacturers. And they we won the first three races and um, and they they came back to the AMA and they, they protested the bike. They used a rule saying that the bike was supposed to be street legal. And in fact they allowed it to be raced in Superbike the R7. They said for a Formula Extreme, it had their, you know, they they used it as an argument when it really wasn't a fair argument. And it took the it, Suzuki actually pushed Honda to to get all both groups together to go to the AMA and say that this bike should be outlawed. And and uh, so I'm thinking to myself that you know this is never going to happen. We're just forging forward. And uh, at Road America, we were, we had a test at Road America. And I remember this very specifically. Um, it was probably a three-day drive for the tractor and trailer to get from Road America back to our shop in Van Nuys. And then it was Memorial, I believe it was Memorial Day weekend. It was a four-day holiday. And, um, and then the next week we would have to be at Steamboat Springs no, not Steamboat Springs, but um, a Colorado Springs for the next AMA race. And they have that, I forget the name of the circuit, but it was in Colorado Springs and some circuit track there. And uh, 
and we got the, the the AMA held all these meetings and said, okay, you, you can't come back with that bike. So it was, I, I couldn't believe for the life of me that not only had my, you know, my company had invested all this time and energy that somebody could actually use a pencil to turn a ruling over where the AMA had already allowed us to do this and spend this money. And in hindsight, if I look back at it now, I should have took him to court. Right. It, and well, it's, it, it, it was, was really, 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 really pretty dirty on their part, but we could not come back with the same motorcycle and build a completely different bike. Yeah, it was it was pretty shady, and I remember reading uh, an article that Chris Ulrich wrote about it, uh, and yeah. he was like, "Look, how can you allow a bike and then decide that it doesn't fit there anymore? Right. Yeah. Not not exactly fair, and not exactly legitimate." Uh, so yeah. those those days, I think, I think those days are uh, were pretty pretty shady with a lot of backroom deals. Uh, yeah, but. That being said, I think that what we have today with Motor America, those things don't exist. So as far as I know. I don't think the politics are any different, to be honest. Really? It's just a different it's just a different set of politics. Right? Okay. It, it's it's racing is it's a really, really tough business. And um, there's a lot of money on the line. And it doesn't I, I haven't seen an era yet where there isn't some step that doesn't really make a lot of sense. But um, yeah, okay. That's that that that's kind of what I. They're they're not the AMA, but you know, I, I to be honest, I'm I'm not sure why things are the way they are today or why they were back then. Right? I can only I can only speculate, but you know, it's kind of a kind of a really bad deal for me back then. So mm -hmm. I really felt like we got penciled out of a championship. That wouldn't have been the only time that happened, right? It actually, it actually happened in, in, uh, 2005, right? What, what happened so, there? So, um, we won the championship in 2004 for, you know, this, the former USA, the former extreme thing changed, right? They eliminated it and they, we did stock 1000. That was our new job at the R1 when the new 04 came out. And, uh, I remember just being a fantastic uh era first opportunity to go down and run at daytona stock 1000 bikes and all four of our riders jamie hacking jason DeSalvo, aaron gobert and david buckmaster all came across the finish line you know just all beside each other you know this was an awesome uh race to win and and we won the championship in 2004 and if with the r1 against the suzuki the gsx r 1000s and and such but in 2005, um, you know, we had some challenges. I think some guys got hurt, but we still were in the fight. DeSalvo was in the fight for the championship when we recognized that the Suzuki guys were running Aaron Yates with a modified swing arm pivot, right? And the Suzuki had an interchangeable swing arm pivot, but you couldn't change those parts, right? You, you had to run the parts that came on the motorcycle. Mm -hmm. So... We, we said, hey, this is this isn't right. You've got this. And they they came back and said, nope, sorry. Um, they sell that part through the normal parts channel, and therefore he's allowed to use it. But that's not the way the rule was. So they did a backroom deal and gave him a pass. 
and I, I, I can tell you there were there there are people that wrote this thing, and this is a, a very there's a lot of weird stuff happened at the AMA at that time. Patty DePetrie was was pseudo running this thing, and they convinced her that it was a safety thing. Has nothing right? to do with safety. Why would it swing arm angles? Why wouldn't high side? Right. So, uh, okay, we all need that, right? But so they 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 walked us out of a championship there, and DeSalvo narrowly missed the championship. Hacking was injured, and the other guys were injured, so kind of got got walked out on that part. But they, Yates ended up getting the championship in two thousand five. I have to say, it's a pretty sad, pretty sad to see. That's okay. We came back the next year with the R1LE. We filled the podium every single weekend, just about. Just with all three riders, DeSalvo, Hacking, and uh, I forget who was the other guy at that. DeSalvo, Hacking, and, and who would have been the third guy that year? I don't know. Oh, Gilbert. Yeah, no, Eric Bostrom. Oh, wow. Eric Bostrom, yeah. You know, we Great had, guy we had him, you know, we had him on the podcast. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Love that guy. Yeah. Love that guy. Love them both. Ben's Ben's a great dude too. Forgot all about those having the opportunity to work with those guys. Great dudes. Great dudes. He's he's an animal, man. I picked him up. I picked him up uh, in Vegas. He was he had a broken rib and he walked like two miles uh, in the morning just you know just because before I picked him up. And, really? And I was like, Fuck, <laughs> you, you getting out of bed with a broken rib? Yeah, see the bicycle rides they do, you know, yeah. three thousand feet elevation, eight hours, two hundred miles. Yeah, <laughs> and that's before. Oh yeah, breakfast. yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I know that those guys, both of them, are just uh, incredible, incredible athletes, right? Now, right? Now, and, and 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 very humble, both of them too. I love that about those guys. Now, Chuck, yeah. it looks like you're I had ready. the opportunity to ride with them in. Uh, they used to have a house in Temecula, and there's a flat track there. And, mm. uh, you know, they ride like beasts, right? And and will mm. run around circles around everybody, including some professional racers. I would say, except J.D. Beach, who was pretty good at a, a flat track. Uh, mm. But their dad, at back then, 74 years old, would come out in the afternoon and beat them up. Mm. Oh, really? Which was amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not, yeah. Not My Chuck, it looks like you're ready for another championship just by looking at you. All, all that, mm-hmm. you know, all, all that, what's bottled up inside. Uh, are you are you about to take a ZX-10 and, and build a race team? Uh, you know, we looked at it really hard. We've looked at it really hard a couple of times. But um, I don't think that's in the cards. To be honest, I think uh, in... You know, I think Superbike is going to change, and I and, and I say that because the the unit sales I think are very small, right? And so um, it's not really that important. And 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 racing is at least when you're trying to get the support to do it, it's very expensive to do, and there's really. Uh, only a few guys that can get a return on the investment in racing. And so a few things have happened. We sell less superbikes or street superbikes to the consumers today. So the budgets are much, much smaller, if any at all, to do it, to promote it. And usually when things are shrinking, 
if you're not trying to expand it, then you're you're just you're tr you know trying to just ride it, yeah. ride it to the bottom. Yeah, exactly. You want to keep selling them. You have customers still want them, but it's not something you plan on expanding, and you have to move into the market. The customers already know who you are, and so um, it's shrinking. You're you're not putting energy, and you're putting your energy into things that you know are growing, right? And so. Um, if we couple that with, so that, that takes the motorcycle manufacturer out of the game. Um, you know, a big part of motorcycle racing in the era that I, I did this was uh, the tire manufacturer. And the tire manufacturer, on average, sells probably 10 sets of tires per motorcycle, which they're, they, so their profit from the sale of a motorcycle is pretty high. And so they, they, they want to build a customer base that continues to come back and buy that consumable and 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 they're reasonably expensive so there's that's the next guy who stands to benefit the most but that's in racing that doesn't exist anymore right everything's spec so there are, there's no support there either and um and and i would say that um the organizations have driven the uh, racing more towards an entertainment package where it's about the rider and not about the machine in other words with spec stuff and um uh, with balancing and and when you do that um it makes what we do less important in other words guys like me right if i work hard you're gonna you're gonna slow my bike down somewhere right so and the guy who doesn't work hard gets uh you know gets concessions right because he doesn't that doesn't win so um you you make what we do unimportant and therefore it, it has no value to us or much less value and so we take that whole part out of it so now where do we actually draw from to get a return on the investment of, the, of what it costs to do this to go do a superbike program today to start it up and pay everybody as a professional team probably talking six and a half million bucks to get it up and going for the first year right and inflation is here to stay it's not going to get any cheaper right so i would say that's not going to happen we we've, we've looked really hard at it we've had some folks that are that have got a lot of energy and want to do it but to put it all together and and put something together that says it's at least a three-year program because that's what it takes right to, mm. to come in and do this and 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 make it right and have it professional and I, I haven't found that right group of partners that's ready to spend that kind of money at, at, at with the type of return that we're going to get from it so i'd say that's probably not going to happen we looked at it really hard and we try every year but the deadline for me is in is in is in june or july right for the following year mm -hmm. because that's the time frame it takes to actually get prepared and do it and bring all the partners together mm -hmm. So we'll, we'll continue to look at it, but I think, I think Superbike's got some big challenges. The, the funding from the, at least for the Japanese manufacturers, um, in, here in the United States, um, or probably all the manufacturers, I, I really don't see them having the budgets to spend. Right. And, um, so I, I, I don't think that that's going to be um, I think most of their money is spent in MotoGP and World Superbike, 
And that's, mm-hmm. and so they, most of that road race money, even though we sell a lot of motorcycles, we're the, we're the biggest market by dollars. Um, we see the money is being spent in some other places, right? So, and I think they're struggling too, right? Maybe not MotoGP, but um, maybe some teams in MotoGP are struggling. But uh, um, I think World Superbike, they're probably struggling too. So I think that's going to be a really a, a difficult lift. And it's, right. it's, it's sad to see, right? But America's got uh, the lion's share of the budget for off-road racing. And they should. 85% of all the motorcycles, off-road motorcycles are sold here. Right. So oh, wow. we should have the we should have the money to to go racing. Right. We should have the money to go uh, sport bike racing too. But it's still, again, this thing has to be about selling motorcycles, right? It's, it can't be about racing. And so if it's if it's about good racing or balanced racing, why would you do it? You want to go prove like we when we started the conversation we were talking about how this thing got built uh from the beginning and the manufacturers were really pushing to prove their bikes were dominant ones out of willow springs way back in that era that's still what they want today but if if they spend that money and do that and then you take away their opportunity when they do well i mean no businessman would do that right but you (laughs) i've I won't, right? I'm happy to come and entertain it. I like, I love motorcycle racing and, and being involved, but it's got to make sense too. Yeah. So, um, so I don't understand a little bit what the, the different approaches of different manufacturers. So yes, in general, bike sales have slowed down, but then you see Ducati, for Ducati example, for- doubling down on super bikes. And, and even their 800s that are now in 50s and, and almost 1,000, there's no mid-sized bike. Um, you know, Jigs, Suzuki and others are still in the 600. The Yamaha pulled out of the 600. You mentioned something earlier about the R1. I don't know what's happening there, but it sounds like it, it was uh, something that may be ending. So it, it seems like different companies have making different bets on the market and, and where the market's going. And understanding some are going smaller uh, displacement size, which seems to make sense to me. Kawasaki is still doing the entire range. It doesn't seem like what you're saying is the meter bikes not doing that well. Opposite side of the stream, Ducati's doubling down on the liter bikes and making them 1.1, 1.2 and crazy horsepower. So who's right? I mean, <laughs> well, I, th- I think the guy who sells the most motorcycles, right? And, and and really the guy who's right is having the best time, right? Is enjoying what they're doing and 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 the company that's that and the people that work there. That's who's right. But if we want to talk about, you know, who's number one or who's selling the most or, you know, when it comes to racing, who's right? Well, you know, if I was to look at the teams in the paddock and look where their budgets are coming from, right, we're going to see they're coming from individuals, I think, right? And I think Yamaha still has a little bit of money in there and Suzuki's got a little bit of money, but it isn't really the, the type of money that it takes to do it, right? So I think everybody's really struggling. And and I think there's a few philanthropists that are putting money in. The Ducati of New York guy, I think, pays for the uh, Ducati that Josh Heron rides. Um, and I think uh, a gentleman, Mike Kiley, is paying for the Seitler's BMW. But he's paying for everything. Like, writing the check for it all. They're buying the parts, right? Mm-hmm. Buying the parts, buying the crew, right? So, um, 
that's a very difficult thing to continue with without getting a return on that investment. That's 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 why I'm saying it. If it was a much smaller number, it was a couple million dollars instead of six million dollars, right? I'd say probably the industry might be able to find a few things, but to be honest, where do you go to get that other industry? Some oil guys, right? Well, what are you gonna, how much can you get there, right? So you have to go outside the industry. And so the influence that you're gonna get a return on has to be pretty grand. Well, you know, if it, there's a lot, there's a lot of companies doing a lot of marketing and advertising out there. I just don't see very difficult to get the mainstream to put up that kind of money for for what we're doing right it's very difficult at least in america speaking of which this is a bit of a left field question speaking of sponsors um like petrol companies right we're a big oil production company uh, country in general mm -hmm. repsol mm -hmm. big sponsor of honda petronas was doing motorcycles that you know they got into car racing I mean, you have oil business into racing significantly around the world. Nothing in the U.S. I've never seen Exxon or Mobil or Shell or anybody put a couple of dollars in, in well, at least as major sponsors. Why is that? You know, I, I, I can't answer that for sure. But what I do know is the way business has, operates in the United States is very different than the way business operates in the rest of the world. And so this, this much I'm sure of. Um, and so I, I don't, I think we have more boards where decisions are made. There's money and remember money can get spent anywhere. Yeah. You know, if you, um, and so I think the person who's signing off has to have a lot of horsepower to say, this is where we're going to put this much money. Right. And, and I think in, in a lot of places, maybe they have guys where the power is consolidated. Can that make, can make that decision and say that, um, and where the money's in and the control of the money's in many more people's hands here, so um, that that can be part of it. I don't. Maybe we just don't have a good enough pitch, but I suspect it's it's the former. Right? Um, but that would actually make sense, yeah, because a lot of large companies in Europe are still family owned or individually owned. Yeah. Uh, they have boards, but. Uh, you, you know who the person is making the decision, whereas in the U.S. they're very prudent and it's consensus decisions in that case. That would make yeah. a lot of sense, actually. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we've had some come around, but that guys actually have the grit to, and, and the resources to do it. When they get a real close look at it and what it's going to take, and I think a lot of times it's like, look, if I can get some partnership, I'll do it, Right. And so you, you get you can get really close, but what does that partnership mean, right? And the numbers the numbers just so big it's hard to get there. So, um, I, I think I, I, like I like I, I think motorcycle road racing in America is, still has life in it, right? I just don't know that it'll be in in the form of superbike, right? Mm -hmm. I mean it's it's really great. I just don't think we get the numbers, right? I don't, I don't think we get the numbers. That's, that's, that's my concern. And I think it's been, they've been struggling to get um, a good size grid. And like, I, I, I think you got to have the manufacturers back in, but I don't think you're going to get them back in when you have balanced racing. That's what I, that's what I think. They need to be able to prove that their product is the best. 
right? Or at least have that opportunity. And and I so I think I think that's I think that's the big challenge we have right now. That's interesting because car racing that still works, right? People who owns McLarens and Ferraris and and Aston Martins are chatting after every F1 race and going like, you know, my car is better than yours type of discussions, but it doesn't seem to be happening in motorcycling the same way. Do you know why? It's, well, it's because people that are young and have that kind of disposable income uh, from crypto or whatnot, they'll buy a McLaren or a Ferrari and they'll advertise it, but they're not going to buy a motorcycle. So motorcycles are cool. It's just a question of showing how cool they are to everybody and increasing the market size it's not about manufacturer about manufacturer if you want to sell more everybody needs to get together and show young guys or young people how cool motorcycles are um and that's i think that's that's why the decline is yes we had a surge in in 2020 um people went off road because they wanted to get out of the house but people that actually think motorcycles are cool and and want to put two or three of them in the garage um it they're still affordable i mean even even at twenty thousand dollars it's more affordable than what cars are Uh, and it's just a question of showing everybody how cool they are and whatever whatever comes out of this industry needs to be done i think together not manufacture against manufacture at least until the market size goes back to what it used to be you know an observation that may or may not be entirely accurate uh it looks like the industry is in kind of staring at its own navel. Uh, because if I look at where, for example, motorcycle advertising happens, it happens in road racing magazine. It happens in very specialized magazines that pertain to motorcycle. Very rarely do I open, let's say, a GQ or just kind of a general purpose magazine or any sort of publication or general TV where you see a motorcycle advertisement. It seems they're advertising to the same people who already have motorcycles as opposed to trying to get new people in the fold. And that's where maybe a big miss is because people aren't getting exposed to how cool motorcycles are. You know, I get excited sometimes when I see an ad where there's a cool person that's on a motorcycle and you're like, okay, now we're looking cool again. But it's so rare. And that would happen to be an ad that has nothing to do with motorcycling, maybe a clothing brand. But it's super rare to look at a generic publication that targets women or targets young guys or targets older guys and actually advertises motorcycles. Well, look, think about the numbers, right? Because if we think about the numbers of of people that will, you know, females that will, or just people, let me say, I don't want to make this a gender thing, they would buy a purse, right? We got 350 million Americans that might buy a purse, right? But how many of them are going to buy a motorcycle? Let's 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 talk about how many leader bikes they're selling. A thousand. So, so maybe let's just say that the total number of thousand cc bikes, sport bikes. Not, I don't want to wrap this into, um, uh, you know, page twos, but but real sport bikes, ones that are influenced by road racing, zx tens, R ones, CBRs. Ducati Vs, RSV4s, what is it? Does it even reach 10,000 combined per year? If it does, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised. 
I think the number is a little bit less than that. Wow. Uh, there was a, you know, a, just a few years back, they only sold 360 GSXRs, 1100s. So, um, I, I it, it, so to, to spend the money to advertise the, the, the price point, just there's no match there. So they would have to co-brand with the person selling a purse using the motorcycle to make the purse look cool. And I think more of that these days would be done with something that is more mainstream, like a V-twin. V-twins are very popular. I could see uh, the bagger racing in America. As a matter of fact, I would say that there's 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 more full-time jobs in bagger racing right now than there is in superbike racing. I think there might be there might be more money being spent right now in that. And you, you can just see the riders starting to gravitate over there. You can actually get a paycheck. I, probably more guys getting paid to ride baggers than there are getting paid to ride superbike. So I could see bagger racing being the most important thing in American racing. It's a little hands-off. It's a lot more consumers. Matter of fact, I think some of their fan growth really comes specifically from that 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 class. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just how it is which, which doesn't make and doesn't make are... a lot of sense to me because when you when you go bagger racing wouldn't you want to be on the machine that's the fastest and the machine that's the fastest is a superbike <laughs> so you're, you're taking machines that are slower just because they resemble you know baggers and baggers sell more which makes people want to see their motorcycle on the racetrack Look, motorcyclists are so unique in itself just think of the numbers right of motorcycles that there are and we want to be able to personalize our, our vehicles if we can't personalize them like if there's no accessories we don't buy it or we might buy it but we get rid of it pretty quick right we want to stand out in the crowd and we want to be associated with others like us right and so they're super loyal you can walk around you'll see guys with a tattoo ducati yamaha kawasaki i mean they choose their brand they 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 find their home, they, they, they tattoo it on themselves, right? Harley Davidson. And so they, they, they're, they're just a different group. We're small and we're, we're a different group. And so I think we can't understand why other people can't connect, but some people look at them and they're like, that's so far from being approachable. So we have to look at it um, like Nabil Nabil was saying, how do you get them on the scooter right that's more important if we're talking about bringing new people into the fold and like i think that that's happening i think that's happening it's becoming more uh let's just say approachable from we, we see more women riders today than we, we've had in the past which is great um and and so i think um where the real growth is that's why i say when we're talking about superbike I think the real growth is in the is uh, is in just what people want to buy, and if you talk to some of the new people coming in, they'll look over at this. Uh, Kawasaki's got a new bike called an Eliminator. It's four hundred and fifty cc's. It's short. It's like a little chopper kind of thing, parallel twin, and uh, I just love it. People look at it and they go, "Man, that is the coolest looking bike, right?" And and you go, "Oh," but I was like I was saying earlier on in the conversation that. We're these guys that have been around and we've evolved into these lifeline motorcyclists that, you know, if the bike doesn't have an IMU and 
10 TC maps and four power modes and, you know, engine braking and, you know, stopped all on its own. And you're like, why would you buy anything other than that? Right. But these guys are just looking at, wow, that's the coolest looking thing ever. So, wow, this is fun to ride. So uh, the industry goes through those cycles, right? And that's the cycle I think we're in right now. And uh, so. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Chuck. No, no, you go ahead. I was, I, I was going to say, I think you put your finger on like the, what you said was very astute. The, the three things that can move this industry is, you know, one of them is obviously the, the more accessible bikes. Uh, two, you know, I think the baggers actually is a good thing because if, if I can showcase a suspension that works on a Harley and I can target 500,000 Harleys in the US because it makes your bagger handle better or some bracket on the frame, then this is going to be gold because it's money for the industry. It gets attention and that brings people into the fold. But because a Harley is intimidating, then you can get a smaller bike and then graduate into either a Harley or a sport. I started on Harleys, went into sports biking because I wanted a better performance bike. Uh, and I think the third thing, which I wish people did more intentionally, is this co-branding you talked about. Because you're right, you know, getting an ad in mainstream media is expensive. But if I went and convinced every big fashion brand and, and you know, cool brand name out there to say, hey, you know, put your model on a motorcycle, male or female, instead of putting them in a car and put some money that way. And maybe we supported 10, 20 percent of the ad cost <laughs> and they supported 80 percent. Now you get this association with a cool brand, but you're also making motorcycles cool again. And because somehow the industry needs to stop advertising the existing customers and get new customers in. And that's, I think, where it hurts a lot. But it's expensive. And, and I think you put your finger on the solution. We just need more of that. Yeah. So the, the racing thing, you know, was a byproduct of sales being great and manufacturers, manufacturers fighting for market share. And uh, so... And right now we're sort of in that, we're in, a, we're in a different cycle. We're in a cycle of finding these new people and bring, making it cool again. I mean, I don't know if you ever watch Happy Days, Fonzie and a Triumph, I mean, yeah. that made that popular. Um, the Bad News Bears was a was a movie where Kelly Lee had a dirt bike. I mean, as I, a kid growing up, I thought, man, that was the coolest thing. I got to have a dirt bike, right? And so those, you know, uh, Tom Cruise and Top Gun, and he puts the, the sport bike ninja on the map, right? Uh -huh. um, and I, I can't think of all the different people that have come through that have done the Harley Davidson thing. You know, made it the bad boy image where guys guys want to look and feel and and have all of that that uh, that type of um, existence of you know of of um, in the motorcycle industry, right? So, or should I say, motorcycle experience? So, um, I think that's coming around. Right, we got to find places for it, and uh, and I think I think it's I think it's it's happening, but I think these things take time. They take time. People have to grow into them, and, and we have to. So keep, that's, that's yeah, and we have to get people that started. We have to keep them in the sport or in into motorcycles and not have them, uh, you know, crash, break a leg or something, and and just get out and sell the bike. I think I think we lo we lose a lot of people because of lack of education and showing them how to ride correctly sure. and survive. Sure. Yeah, and, and and they're not for everybody. That's for sure. Right, motorcycling is not for everybody. But uh, it, well, it, well, it you is... see the way some people drive. People should not be near a car, <laughs> let alone a motorcycle. Yeah, well, that's what I say. It can be very intimidating to 
And I hear a lot of people say, well, I don't, I won't ride on the street, but I, I, I ride on the street every weekend. I enjoy it. And, and I ride to work when I can. So, yeah. And I think look, there's, there, we got a lot of hot new models right, that I think are, are, are bringing people to, to the, to the marketplace. And so um, it's a really exciting time for me, I think, in the motorcycle industry. Jack, Jack you're, you're the king of Willow. Take us through a lap of Willow Springs in a really fast pace. You, you start... Really fast pace. Yeah, you start yes, coming you out know. of turn nine. No, no, you don't start at nine. You oh, go really? into one, right? Uh, well, right? okay, you start at one. You go into one. And you go into one, and uh, you got three rollers on your way in if you're on the outside right mm-hmm. and if you so that's if you want the high line and you want to exit you know early or you have the low line the low line's banked and there's a nice rubber groove all the way to the curbing on the inside and you'll have to come out high so classic would be curtis adams and myself you know crisscrossing there a little straight away between one and two wait you have a patch you have a patch on right between the apex of turn one and just a little little inches to the right everybody kept telling me go go between that patch uh, and I kept missing between it between one one yeah, and turn two. turn one yeah turn one on the apex there's a patch a few inches to the right or there used to be I never hit the pinch. Okay. I, I would almost always take the low line. Okay. I, I think there was a lot more time to be had on the entry and uh, when scrubbing the speed with the front down to the bottom. And the short shoot between there and two is pretty short. So you could you if you took the high line and you had a lot more drive leaving, you just had to have to slow down more going on in, on your way into two. So I always felt the low line was, was better and I, I could make more there. And I, I, I didn't have to accelerate as hard in my bank. You know, there's a lot more bank on that, that low part of, of turn one. Okay. Smoother too. Easier on the tire. Okay. Um, now so you, I never, I never would see that patch. Okay. Now you would, how would you go into turn two? Would you go at the, the center of the racetrack? You, would you go all the way yeah. to the left? No, I, I would, I'd swing it all the way, all the way to the left. Right. So I, I'd, I'd let it hang all the way to the right. All the way back to the left look the tracks the tracks pretty wide there but if you come all the way to the left and you then come all the way back to the to the right at the entry you know the tracks got two groups like this and the seam in the middle right so you drop in at the bottom right and then let the speed scrub off as as you go up the hill you lose the bank right and then you just let it run over the top of the seam and right just on the outside of the seam had the best grip. But if you rode the outside of the seam, you left the hole open where somebody could come under the end. You know, somebody was right beside you. They could drive up, squirt up the inside. The reason why I like to cross the seam is it was a little easier on the tire and you had a better approach exiting. So it was a, it was actually more fun too, because as you would... If you left it on the inside, you had to wait to open the throttle as you crested the top on the exit. And that's where there's a patch up at the top. And it's uh, the two seams come together and then another seam. And right as you leave there is where you could get it lit up and drive it off the top of the, that crest, you know, which is crest up and you could really just burn the tire. You know, let's let it hang off to the very outside back 
back over to the to the left again as you head down the straightaway for turn three. Now, would you would you sometimes double apex it, or would you just hug the curb into into? Well, that's that's kind of what be that would really be the double apex, right? Okay. You drop down into the bottom, let it scrub the speed off across the the, the scene, and then you right, and then you pull uh, it back back down tight again and run it up off the top. So that's that's the two the two apexes. Okay, and then right, that was probably the most fun. That was the funnest way around the track, <laughs> right? Um, it, that 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 way is a little bit harder on the tire too, but that's that's okay if it's not fun. <laughs> then you know you could probably do just about the same lap time, just letting it run around the inside, but not nearly as exciting. Okay, right? and and turn three, you would you would go all the way to the right and then turn it straight in. Well, you know, turn three, you could do the same thing. There was there was a groove where you could really break low. And over the years, there was a bump uh, evolved, or you know, in uh, on on entry on that low line. So you would almost be forced to go to the high line because you'd have to break over that bump to really scrub the speed for the entry. But so it was real. I really liked the low breaking uh, line there, and I and I liked it because you had to pick it up right away and turn it into four, and you couldn't use the outside of four. The outside of four had way less bank and it was really, really bumpy or had way less grip. So it really didn't matter trying to have a lot uh, a lot of exit speed out of three. It'd be, it was always faster to scrub it on the inside and it would be, it was banked. So as you scrubbed it, you'd still be slowing and then you can flick it straight over into, into four and then hug the inside. Okay. Uh, that was always... That was fastest, safest way, I think, through there. The high line, you could you could get a little bit more speed, right? But there's a couple of rollers there too, you know, braking rollers, and 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 you had to kind of get up above those and turn it a little later. You know, I think it was really a waste of time to, to try to go out that high. Okay. And, and then you would yeah. you would go through uh, four, not go too high, four B, uh, and yeah. then. How much would you drift towards five? Would you drift all the way to the left? Yeah, you you really you really needed to do that. That's um, uh, it, and and the the big the hardest thing for most people to understand is you needed to be patient, right? You needed to have the speed as you exited, and the track goes away, so you you have to be patient on how much throttle you give, but you you also can't be uh, stagnant on the throttle as you run down towards five, right? And you really you needed to use as much of the track on the exit and then pull it all the way back over to the right again for five. You really needed to do that. Okay. And then now if you didn't, your approach leaving uh, seven would be would be compromised, let's say that, if you wanted to carry the speed. So we can go through these and then you'll figure out why I'm saying that. But now so would you all the way to the left? Yeah. No. No. Would, would you double double apex on six? Uh, no, single apex six. Okay. And then you would go yeah. straight up, and then seven. You 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 had to bring it all the way back for five. Right. So all the way back to the right, and you had to turn where where the banking was going away. Right. So that it was downhill, and you, if you waited to turn when you got into the bank. Right, that's down low where you could really get some G's. You'd be rushed to get to six, 
you can do it that way and scrub speed if you were in a bad position or you made a mistake and just let it run off into the bank there. But um, if you can hug the inside, you had a much better approach and a much smoother track and a shorter, straighter shot over the top of six, right? And that was always the, the you know easiest way to get over it. And it was pretty exciting to do it that way, get patient, the inside, turn it early and, and get a straight shot over six. And then didn't matter where you were going, you could just wheelie all the way down the back straightaway. <laughs> you mean you so could wheelie? <laughs> <laughs> A fast motorcycle could wheelie, <laughs> wheelie down the back straightaway, and that so that was pretty exciting. And from there, it didn't yeah. So, eight was absolutely a corner there. Right? <laughs> a lot of people think you just go through it, but there's absolutely a corner there, and uh, and there's high lines and low lines, but the low line is is the right one. And they had rollers out there too, right? There's a couple of big rollers, and the closer you got to the inside smoother it was so you, you and and so you and you try to get it over to the inside as far as you can and you, but you can't always make it there because the wind is so the wind is blowing out there and so it's a little bit of a safety margin too to be towards the inside because you could miss by three four feet just because of, you know the, the change in the gusts as you turn right as you turn that would be the direction the wind would be heading especially in the afternoon yeah especially in the afternoon yeah and it was you know it's gusty it's not steady it's gusty so you get up over those two rollers right and 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 you really you got that's where you make big time at willow is not rolling off as you head in there and that that takes a lot of foresight right as to where you're going to be because you're really moving when you get there and uh you have a little short shoot after those rollers between eight and nine and then you could pretty much do just about anything you wanted there right as long as you um made it to there's a there's a couple of cracks right in the track that you could see but you couldn't see them till you got within you know some distance of them there's no cones, no markers, nothing. That's what you have are a couple of cracks. And they would change as years would go on. But And Bill would not let anybody go out there and spray paint the track. <laughs> Otherwise, I would have been out there spray painting. And, <laughs> but as long as you could get out there somewhere in about five, 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 ten foot, you could find a place to turn it and 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 have a run up the front straightaway, just about. And a little, a little bit higher, had less of a dip, right? And, but you could go down into the dip if you needed to make a pass, right? Or, yeah. or if, uh, you know, if you felt like you, you could, you know, you had blown it and, and needed to short, shorten up the corner a little bit, you could do that. So that's a lap of Willow Springs. <laughs> From the king himself. I'm the best, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, we, well, we, the way we used to train, I mean, this is a Keith Code thing, was to run the track through your mind, right? And use a stopwatch, not looking at the stopwatch, but use the stopwatch and, and do these laps through, uh, through your mind and then hit the stopwatch and you do lap after lap, right? And you actually picture yourself in the race with you know whoever your nemesis might be, right? And, uh, and then you go back through the laps and you see how accurate you are 
to know how well you know the racetrack. We even evolved it later to, you know, when you're exercising, doing the same thing. So you get the heart rate up, right? And while you're doing your run on the treadmill, of course, you're going through the laps and and clicking them off. And, and so you, you really get to know the circuits well that way. Visualization, yeah, that's the best way. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a, that was that was my training, right? Yeah. So you were talking a bit earlier about when the inability, more or less, to build the bike the way you would want to, and the rules that prevent you from uh, building a great bike, right? And now, now, pretty much everybody's on equal machinery, give or take. Um, so manufacturers don't have this big opportunity to, to showcase the technology prowess. Um, but it sounds, I mean, like take us through what it takes to build a great team. Because when I started getting familiar, Moto America restarted and I started getting more familiar with road racing in the US, um, you know, Braves bikes were the dominant team and, and you guys just had everything right. And it, it sounded to me being a newbie that that's what it took now. It wasn't just, you had a great bike and you had a great, you had to have a great team. You have to have great logistics. Um, you know, your your engineers have to be able to communicate well with the racer to get the feedback and, and the incremental changes in the bike were there. I mean, part of it was the magic, like, you know, Gigi Delinia is he's known to be going through the rule book and figuring out where the loophole exists to create something that they didn't foresee in the rule book and then get an advantage. But it, it sounded also more like it's got to be a complete show. Everything's got to be right. And walk us through a little bit what it takes to, run build and run a great team a winning team well well it's good you know you gotta you gotta start with some money right that's that's right there there's a lot of pieces to that right and you know like any sports team you have to have good flow with all the team players right so it's really it's really no difference just the mechanics of of racing is specific to maybe a class or a specific rider right all of those things are important um, and and making all those things flow. I don't know that uh, um, you're right in saying that that's where it's evolved to. That the team matters, and I just the the challenge is that's the most expensive part of this is the manpower. Motorcycles are cheap, really, by comparison to a total budget. But the personnel and moving those personnel, especially professionals, they can get the job done. It's not it's not a five minute job, right? You know, fire. This is when we were talking earlier. What it takes to go superbike racing, um, and I said, it, you know, you got to have a three year deal to make it work. Well, that's because it takes time to bring all that together. It doesn't it's not it's not a hey, I'm just going to write a check and do this, right? So knowing what you need to do, that's that 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 takes somebody who has the experience and the understanding uh, of what the rider needs to get around the circuit more so today than anything else, right? Because it's become about the rider or at least that part of it. Now, unfortunately, this seems to be the part that uh, some of the folks that are spending the money have, 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 want to invest in the least, right? And so that's a challenge because, right? That's a challenge. 
It's not, it's not, if you want professionals, you want professional racing, it can't be a hobby. And it's so, um, you know, every, everything from nutrition when you get there to how you, the riders prepare and the crew prepares before they get there or even how they finish the season, right? And how they, whether they do anything with the information they learned all year or not and right there's there's so much to that and that that takes an organization to do it so if there were some very specific things areas that you you wanted to know about i could but say how can i explain uh to put a, a professional winning road racing team together I'm going to need a lot more than a two-hour podcast, right? I'll teach you everything I know in about five minutes, right? So that, it's a it's a it's an absolute art form to bring people together, as you know, in any organization, right? It's an art form to bring people together and keep them together. So, yeah, in a sense, it sounds a lot. So I've been involved in a lot of startups on the technology side and software side. And it sounds a lot like this, right? And part of the job is fundraising. Part of the job is getting the right team together. Part of the job is now building the magic, the product that's actually going to get the demand. Well, in the racing case, the product that's going to win. And you're wearing all these hats, which makes it really difficult for a team founder or manager. Because everybody's counting on you to get all these pieces right. Ultimately, yes, the racer is a big part that everybody sees. But the manager is kind of the underrated part of the deal where you go, if they can do it right, then the magic happens. If they can't, you can get Marquez on your bike, like we're seeing right now with Honda, and he's not going to go anywhere. And there's there's so much to it. You hit, you hit the nail right on the head, right? Hey, you know, fundraising is one thing. Think of what it takes just to satisfy your your contributors. That 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 effort is, is not small. That takes full-time staff to satisfy the when you go out and raise six and a half million dollars, you're gonna need a guy just doing that. Right? <laughs> oh yeah, we're going through yeah. it right now. Well, where are your sales? Well, that's where they're right. coming. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. So yeah, it's uh so I, I I yeah, motorcycle professional motorcycle racing is a is, is a really cool thing. It's a, uh, it's very exciting and being able to do that, put all that together and get guys, you know, motivated and, and, uh, and working as a unit, really self-satisfying for sure. Right. So, but it, it, it definitely takes serious resources. And when your resources are on that, let's say for when you guys ask the question about, uh, would I go back and do it again? Or if that opportunity was there, um, the amount of uh, the the things I've accomplished since we stopped doing professional racing uh, in other areas of our business uh, uh, just could not have been done right at the same time as as running a ra professional racing team because running a professional racing team is everything right there is no tomorrow because the race is tomorrow. Right. And then when the race is over, you don't stop. It's not like you take a rest. 
because the next race is coming up and everything else goes on the back burner. I was going to yeah. say your your catalog of of uh, products is is much richer now than it was in the days where you were running uh, your race team. So I, I yes. took a look. I took a look at the website. You have thousands, right? Thousands of parts. Yeah, and every, we we add two three new products a, a, a week. So we're we're on the gas, and we've expanded those offerings, and we've. You know, it's very difficult manufacturing in the United States, but manufacturing in Los Angeles, California, somebody had to say, you are crazy, son. What are you doing? You're crazy. This is where I live. <laughs> yeah, I am. I just, I am. This is where I live. This is where my people are, right? And um, we we do some stuff that nobody in America does, right? I mean, that's, we use all the, the finest grade materials, and we make sure the quality is the best. If you've seen some of the titanium welding and the products that we output, I mean, we're a very small company and a really tight group, but we only put out the best stuff. So what, what type what type of motorcycles do you manufacture for and, and people that have those motorcycles? Uh, you can go to Graves Motorsports and figure out how to make your bike cooler, faster, uh, so give us a rundown of, of just the manufacturers and models you you have parts for. Well, it'd be easiest just to focus on the guys that we're most focused on in performance right now today, and that's the Kawasaki brand. Um, so, but I, you may or may not know that there was, as this era came about with the balanced racing and fairness doctrines and this type of thing, um, about 2008, the Daytona Motorsports Group um was coming in to take control of pro racing in america ama had put themselves in a bad financial position of course so did a lot of people were in a bad financial position um and without the uh let's say without a vote of the members of the ama they sold the board sold the rights to pro motorcycle road racing to a group called the Daytona Motorsports Group, which happens to be the same guys that own ISC and NASCAR of France. So at that at that moment, they told us that they would, um, you know, gonna, we're going to change everything, right? We're going to, everybody's, every part's got to be homologated and everybody gets to have the same stuff and we're going to do spec tires and we're going to change make make this the same for everybody and so i thought well you know this is that's fine you want to do it that way great i love bridging the gap between the house and the have-nots also everything we own we'll give them the same stuff right most guys won't do that and 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 the reason we will is the, for the same re reasons the bill just asked me about what it takes to go winning right because without that group doesn't matter. I can give you the best stuff, but you still got to manage it, right? Mm -hmm. So we've always felt like I, we prefer to sell the very best and give it to the guys. So that's when we started producing motorcycles and selling them and technically supporting them. And that was really successful. It was really successful for us. And um, actually, I started my company in the very earliest days making fairing brackets that are only factory bikes had. Right. This goes back to when I told you I got, I took over that job as a professional 
writer. And, and so I had this time on my hands when we started the company. I started bridging the gap between the haves and the have-nots. I took factory, I looked at the fairing brackets on factory motorcycles and GSXRs, stock, big, heavy steel thing. The factory bikes have these really cool aluminum fairing brackets. So I started making them, selling them and, and, and getting them to the consumer. And that was one of the first, our first slogans was look that we, we sell what we race. And so um, we, we took it to the next level. We built a build list of every nut, bolt, and screw and schematic and said, look, everything's for sale. You tell us what you want to do. We'll change kits, everything. And we went down and, and that's when they were driving this uh, into 600s for the Daytona 200, right? So that very next year for 2009. And we made a bunch of the kits and it was, you know, you can take, they, they gave us a really strict set of rules. And uh, so that, I'm a little off track here because you just want to know about the bikes that we built. But we just, we decided at that time we would do the entire motorcycle, right? Let's nut, bolt, screw, all the factory, whatever the best stuff was. We'll help you. We'll show you how to use it. We'll sell you the spares and uh, we'll send you on your way. To, and, and a lot of guys won a lot of races on this stuff that we've bought it. Fast forward to 2019, when we um, uh, we were no longer running the uh, racing team with Yamaha, and we were at home, we wanted to expand that product line, and we chose the Kawasaki motorcycles. And so uh, we built, started building Kawasaki brand bikes and offering those as well as the Yamaha platforms. And that became really successful. As a matter of fact, so successful, you know, I'd like to take a little bit of credit for the acceleration of, of Kawasaki's movement from where they were at that era for sport bike sales in America to where they are now, which is number one. Um, but we've built bikes uh, that have won national championships that we've we've managed from home. In other words, we would, for Richie Escalante in 2020, we built a Kawasaki ZX-6 and we put the data on the bikes. We didn't send any of our technicians to the track and we managed the data and, and the technical assistance over the phone and through the internet. And he won a national championship in most of the races and on a motorcycle that, that nobody else was even thinking about. And so um, that's been really successful for us today. And so today, the, the, the one that we're doing the most of is this new flagship bike, the Kawasaki ZX4RR, which is that new four-cylinder inline, which just, if you get a chance, both of you, you've got to ride it because I kid you not, it's the most friendly and inspiring uh, motorcycle I've ridden in the last decade. Right? Just a blast. And young, old, tall, short, female, male, experienced, not experienced, you're going to love it. Just amazing bike to ride. You can ride it all day long, right? And it just doesn't wear you out and it's exciting all the time. But so I'd say the Kawasaki brand products, we, the, the other thing that we, we've really expanded on is dual sport and adventure, right? Adventure is a little slow adventure guys. They don't quite accessorize as much, but dual sport has really uh, had a lot of growth single track. I don't know if you know uh, if you've done any single track, but um, you know, we, we love single track. That's uh you know, kind of goat trails up through the mountains, picking your way through it. 
for and and those same guys are doing the dual sports stuff. They're riding to the events. There's really a lot of growth um, we see in those areas. There's a. I went to. Let me get tell you this. I went to a, a dual sport. Kind of what you call it, a dual sport rally or an event in Kernville um, last April. I think it was April, right? Or this April, 23. And there was 300 entrants at this event, which was more than like a lot of, or I would say comparable to a lot of road races, right? And other events. So there's 300 entrants. They came with all their family. The, you know, a, a guy and his wife and you know, the girls were riding too and the kids were there and and but there'd be 300 of them just just for the for the actual rides and they had multiple different levels so that's an area that's got a lot of growth so we we because we love it we're, we're really highly involved in making cool products for that so um yeah i would say so, those are the things that we're doing Okay, so basically, quitting racing was the best thing that ever happened to your company. Yeah, well, probably from the, from the company standpoint, I would say absolutely, right? It's given us a lot of, uh, and I'm not saying quitting racing. I love racing. We want to go racing. Uh, I'm just trying to get you all rounded up so you can. Go yeah. <laughs> get him back in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What do you yeah. think about? So, what's your website, uh, Chuck? Where people uh, can purchase the parts. Gravesport.com. That's one S. G R A V E S T O R T dot com. What do you think about MotoGP? Yeah. Any yeah. predictions for next year? What what is Marquez gonna do in Ducati? Uh yeah, you know, I think he's a great rider, right? I you know, my prediction for MotoGP, I'm taking this from a little bit of a scam back, but I, I got some real concerns about it. Um a good friend of mine, Mike Trimby, who's uh, who's really, I would say, the guy who brought the Grand Prix to where it is today. Um, and and he was the leader of Herta, and and he, I believe he, I I think he's responsible for making most of the racetracks around the world safe, right? Him directly, and. For the teams being as strong as they are financially, and for the rules being part of what they are, um, I, I, I mean, it's just a, a, a great man, right? And with a lot of passion and a big understanding of, of Grand Prix racing, I don't really know a lot of the other folks over there, but with his passing, I'm deeply concerned that um, that 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 power shift right so is not that his position is not filled by another mike trimby which i don't see that there'll be a lot of changes right for the teams and riders i, I could be wrong right but i suspect that that will at some level not have the same separation from the organizer and from the you know the the tech guys from the FIM. In other words, I think the balance of FIM, Dorna, and Erta are part having three power pieces. Not that FIM is really much of a power piece or more of just a 
I don't know, they just get kicked around by Dorna probably anyways, but um I I uh I I fear that that that, that triangle's broken now. So we probably won't see any effect of that for some years to come, right? But so if we were just talking about racing, that's it, it. Wow, that's changed a lot, hasn't it? Right? It has really changed a lot. That's almost all Ducatis and KTM's now, and the Japanese manufacturers seem they seem like they're still in it, but only only two Honda and Yamaha, right? So Suzuki's out. Kawasaki's not gone back in. You know, it's kind of a, um, and I've always kind of been a Japanese motorcycle guy, right? I know the European dudes make some really cool stuff. I love their product. Um, but I really like the Japanese product just for a lot of its reliability and um, the sharp edges knocked off of them, right? And they're, 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 they're everyday machines, right? You can always count on them from starting up and, going i shouldn't say like the other guys are less reliable but they're just I, I sharp think, edges i think you, na- you nailed it and they're, they're also more affordable they're more affordable and they're um and they're they're actually they don't they don't over accessorize them for those reasons and so they leave a lot of room open for the aftermarket and that's really important to motorcycling because that drives more energy into it when you take the aftermarket out you sh- just shrink the size of the box so that's the other reason I think I really like the Japanese manufacturers. Um, so I don't know. It's a little bit sad, honestly, to see. And it, there's just, I don't see Valentino Rossi. I don't even see it. I, I love Mark Marquez. I think he's a really special dude. And, and, and as a matter of fact, I like all the riders are just amazing guys, right? But I don't see um, Valentino Rossi. And that's, that's a little bit of a concern for me. Um, everybody just seems so much the same. Right, there, uh, there isn't a. People say it's because of the wings. Uh, there's, there's not enough passing. People can't showcase what they they have or don't have, and and the bikes, the bikes are just, they're just there. They're, they're just good. hanging in there. Uh, there's, it's it's just not a lot of passing, and and they need to make them a little bit looser to figure out who's the best rider. Yeah, you know, maybe British Superbike guys got it right. No electronics. I mean, well, I, I guess maybe, maybe, maybe they got it right. Maybe that's better. I mean, MotoGP is certainly exciting and great racing and a great event. I don't know about the sound because when you go there, it's it's painful to be there all day, even with earplugs, right? Mm-hmm. But um, so they got a great show. I just, I don't know. It's gotten too just generic, I guess. Right? I don't, I don't know. And uh, again, I love it. I like Moto2 a lot. And I, I guess because I got an American to root for, uh, Joe Roberts is a you know, good friend of mine, and, and I love to watch when, when he does well. So just because it's you know it's somebody you can connect with. So, so I'm taking your comment about No Valentino Rossi more from a personality perspective than a race capability perspective and uh, Correct. you know it, it seems they've tamed down everybody into this generic watered down good corporate citizen right and you know yes they're professional they're great racers but there's no larger than life personalities anymore because they're afraid of saying something i mean i sometimes go to the MotoGP gp after parties and uh 
you know, they don't want to be taken uh, in a picture with a drink in their hand. Mm-hmm. So you go, you go and say, let's take a selfie. They got to put the drink down and, you know, because it's not proper to have alcohol. And I'm going like, well, you know, at what point do you neuter it when it becomes so bland that there's no excitement and nobody wants to watch it? Yes, it's great to see sports people perform, but people want the drama around it, like, you know, Giberno and Rossi and Lorenzo yeah. and Rossi. And you don't see, I mean, there's competition, but it's not the same level of drama and excitement that there used to be. Right, right, yeah. But but every one of those guys has to be so good because the machines are all so close and the teams are all so close. Every, but you have to be so good every time that, that there is no room for any of that stuff to happen anymore. So it's it's almost taken some of the some some of the specialty out of it. Let's say, right? There's there, uh, that's a little it's a little it's there's no Kevin Schwantz, right? There's no Barry Sheen. I looked at it from a writing Barry Sheen. Yeah, Barry Sheen. Yeah. So, but I didn't really start watching when Sheen was a guy. I was I came in after, but when I watch, you know, if I look at the events when Kevin Schwantz was at. It was always the most exciting to watch on track. And of course, it was always the fun guys off track, right? Or the personalities like Rossi. So it's a little, I don't know, I don't know about Moto uh, GP. But you know, the one thing I do know is that Moto America, with all of the things they do have going on, I really like their, uh, where you can see the events and things about it all the time. In other words, their their digital package, right, and how it's pushed out is 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 really pretty cool, right? And if they just, you know, I th- I think some new stuff they need some different stuff in there, you know, as far as from the competition side of it, I think, like baggers. I mean, I love watching the baggers race, right? It's it's great racing, right? Yeah, same, same so, with uh, with the Ron Enfields. Yeah, I, I don't know so much about the Royal Enfield. That didn't do much for me, but that that could be really cool. Depending it's for on, the female audience. Uh, those, those are all women. Yeah, yeah, which is cool. Which yeah. well, yeah, it's for, yeah. <laughs> well, no, but it, it, yeah. it, that's that's special. Yeah, it is. Everybody's got that segment, you know, that right. they really dig, right? Yeah, my, my girlfriend knows knows almost nothing about. Yeah. yeah, my girlfriend knows almost nothing about motorcycles, and and I turned on the TV and I said, "Look, those are women racing," and she stayed and watched it. So get this, the same, same, same thing for me. You know who uh, Kayla Yakovic is? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I'm watching. We built a bike for uh, Stefano Mesa this year. And so he, Stefano had some great rides, but the, their cycle guys pulled him off to fill in for Bobier because Bobier was going to take a pass on the second half of the season. Last few rounds, he'd had some injuries, right? And that bike came available and they put you know the put Kayla on that. The last race of the year at New Jersey, Saturday's race, she came from 13th on the grid way back. And this is in the rain, right? So there's no like she had any whatever. She rode the wheels off that ZX6. And it's another lap she'd have won the race. And I, I just the look in the guy's eyes on the podium when they went, What? <laughs> She's here. 
And I'm sure their crew chiefs were telling her she was coming. Because she'd out another lap, she'd have won the race. I don't know if you saw. But that's what I mean about Moto America's package. Their, their TV stuff is really good, right? And um, so I, I, you know, whether I don't like balanced racing or it doesn't fit in the financial or the business model for us today, that doesn't matter. They're, they're, uh, at least their TV package is really, really cool. So um, I'm, I'm, hope, I'm hoping we can do more stuff like that where we can help people like that. And uh, they ride on equipment so we can have some connection with it. And I hope, I hope that that group can really make a go of, of what they're doing here with the resources that they have because it is i think it's really difficult for them to do what they're doing especially with you know the direction sport bikes in yeah that was a good sorry move, i didn't I need to get off the motor gp moto thing america. yeah no yeah. worries what's that i'm saying i think it was a really good move on moto america because you know the bagger crowd is much larger mm. than the sport bike crowds so they're attracting mm. a lot of eyeballs that way and then i mean the women's racing gets women potentially interested so they're doing some smart things. Hopefully, they'll expand the audience here, and then people will buy more motorcycles again. I think. I think they will. I think they will. I think they. I think you know they're they're making some. Like I said, I think they're making a lot of good decisions in that respect. Not that drags a lot of people to the industry. Yeah. Hey, Nabil, remember when we said we're only going to do an hour on the podcast? Yes. Yeah, we're doing really well with that goal. <laughs> <laughs> what? Where are we at now? Two and a half One hours. Hour. <laughs> oh, really? Oh my gosh! I'm here at this open I'm house flies. right here. I, I'm, I'm here at this open house for Magnum Motorsports in the Valley, and I've been two and a half hours up here in their office, sitting down there mingling. They're, they're outside going we like, should, "Whoa!" We should what probably let you go. Yeah. Do that? No, no, no. It's good. I, it's good. I, I'm having a great time. It's great yeah. to. Uh, Talk motorcycle. We, right? we can do we can do a part two, but uh, right now let's let's just ask the last question. You want to ask it, Nabil? No, go ahead. Okay, please. so you're in Van Nuys. This is a trick question. Yeah, you're in Van Nuys. <laughs> it's a trick question. Uh, yeah. Tommy's right. original burgers, Bob Bob's Big Boy, which is a little bit uh, to the to the east of you, or uh, or the Habit, and and think carefully before you answer. Okay, now does it have to be where I would absolutely get my next burger from, or which one do I remember being the best? Which one is the best? Okay, so Bob's Big Boy, Brawny, Brawny Beef Burger. I don't even know if they sell them anymore, but when my, my dad would take us on Sundays after church, we all went to to uh, to. Uh, Bob's big boy afterwards and everybody else would have breakfast. I would have the brawny beef burger. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't had one since I was 12. So, so there, there you have it. I'm sure, I'm sure you pissed off a few people, uh, but that's, that's the why, answer. Who? Why? Cause they thought, <laughs> why? I, I would have <laughs> taken the habit and I know a lot of really? people that would take, taken the uh, Tommy's burgers but the debate will rage on. It will rage on because you know where I had my last burger? Where? In and Out Burger. In and Out Burger on, on uh, Balboa and Sherman Way, right where the old uh, Bob's Big Boy used to be. It's on the, on the way from my office back to my house. <laughs> old double. 
<laughs> yeah, that, that's a Tommy's... inevitable uh, meal in LA. Yeah, yeah, you know the thing about Tommy's. To get to Tommy's, I ha- I'd have to go all the way down and around because I can't go straight up Haskell. It would it's blocked off, so I do have to go up to Sepulveda and go around to get onto Roscoe, right? Unless there's another Tommy's I'm not aware of, or I'd have to go back up Woodley and go away from my my home to get to Tommy's. Yeah, if, that's, if I, that's if the I only up, reason I didn't choose. Tommy's. If I go up Sepulveda, I'm never going to get there. I'm just going to stop at Doctor Hoggy Wogley. Oh yeah, Doctor Hoggy Wogley's. Yeah, right. Yeah. Texas Diner Barbecue, right? Yeah. yeah, and the Valley. A lot of good food in the Valley if you get to the right places. Yeah, I think Gal's yeah. wet dream is to start a food podcast soon. My my, my wet hey, dream is. Is what? Go, oh my my wet dream is to make a lot of money so I can go back to the valley. <laughs> you, you know you gotta have a lot of money to live here. Yeah, it's expensive. I know, expensive. It really, really, you need to. Yeah, I know. That's, that, that's no joke. Hmm. Well, they're having they're having hamburgers here. <laughs> okay, so I'm gonna have a hamburger. That's so gonna we're, gonna, we're gonna let you go, okay. and and we should, we should so do a, yeah we should do a part two because we have so many more questions. Absolutely, absolutely. Oh, Just yeah. let me know when. Okay. Yeah. Great. So great let's remind everybody gentlemen. to check out uh, Grave Sport for all the cool parts and and performance parts for your bikes. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of expanding catalogs. So that's fantastic. Yeah. Congratulations, Chuck. All right. Thank you so much. And thank all you, right, guys. gentlemen. Have a great day. You too. And thank you guys right, for right. listening.